Here we are now with chapter number 15 in our series, Impressions of Grace and Grit. And this chapter we're talking about the New Age paradigm. We're talking about fallacies. Again, we're talking about the perennial philosophy. Again, Ken is going to be dissecting some things in great detail with great clarity on all levels. We're doing cross-paradigm comparisons. And make sure you stick around, because there are also some big movements in our central plot in this chapter. So, the New Age... Well, what is the New Age? New Age is the paradigm which it's sort of like self-help with a little bit of spirituality thrown in there so it's not quite full spiritual and it's not quite full pop psychology as in motivational psychology or the tony robbins style you can do it build your business build your team style of psychology. No, it's, it's sort of somewhere between those. It's got a little bit of each. And of course, it's a broad paradigm. There are lots within it. And we'll be going through this in more detail as our conversation unfolds. So Treya and Ken, well, they decide to move house again because they found a place they like. So they move house again. And Treya has these dreams, which are a bit foreboding. They're a bit dark and they're a bit worrisome. She's got this dream where there's this porcupine attached to her and her friend is trying to get it off and it's sort of poisoning her and it's a bit, it's a bit unsettling. But all the other signs are, well, pointing to say that Treya's doing quite well. And since everything is quite well, well, they've got nothing to do but to just continue with the program as normal. And Treya is well on her road to recovery. She throws herself into her artworks, particularly the fused glass. This is very joyful for her. She's producing designs that are very original, very beautiful. And people even comment there's someone that says oh you must have been doing this for years these are exquisite and she says oh actually only a few months and she does wonder are they just saying nice things just because but no actually she is quite good at glassworks it's quite a difficult medium glassworks because you've got to put it all together and then set your temperatures right in your kiln You can't really know exactly how it's going to turn out until you do it. I have a friend who does potting. And that's a similar sort of thing where you're painting on the colors or you're doing the glazing. And you're not entirely sure how it will look or the vibrancy or how the colors will go together until it's been through the kiln and had its firing. So it's a bit of a hit and miss. It's quite a tricky Anything that involves a kiln, a firing, is a tricky medium. And Ken, well, 
he starts writing again. Hooray! The genius philosopher Ken Wilbur is back on the pen. And in a month and a half, he writes an 800-page book. <laughs> what do you know? Just just casually, you know, just, just because he was feeling peckish, he decided to up, come out with an 800-page book just on the fly, you know, just as if it's nothing. Because that's just what he can do, because he's that sort of guy. And it turns out this book isn't publicly, well, it's not published, it's in manuscript form to this day, but it is on file. And the book was called The Great Chain of Being, A Modern Introduction to the Perennial Philosophy and the World's Great Mystical Traditions. So it's all the things that we've been talking about in this book. It's all the things that Treyer and Ken have been talking about. It's all the things that have been coming up philosophically and religiously for this story, this narrative. And Treyer even has a go at, well, give me a look at some of this, Ken. And he prints it out and hands it over and she has a read fresh off the press. And she's sort of feeling, oh, well, it's good to see that some of our conversations are making it into print. And she even has feedback and says, oh, what about this or not this and that. And they have some bonding over his work. And that's very beautiful. That's very special. When a man and a woman are together in a love relationship and they both share the same bond and interest into the world of work as well, well, that's a very rare thing. That's a very beautiful thing. So Treya and Ken, well, they've finally reconnected on all levels. And another sort of shift comes in their relationship, which is that Ken comes around to say that he wants children. And partly he puts that down to, well, he's got these friends. And he sort of goes and hangs out with them and he talks with his friends And he might hang out with the kids and see what they're like and say, oh, well, what's it like to be a daddy? And there's sort of that side which helped him come around. And he sort of thinks that that's like the shallow side. That's only part of it. That's not the real reason why he came around. And the real reason he puts down to reconnecting with life, reconnecting with his daemon, reconnecting with his zest, for being alive and his connection with Treya. So that's an important hurdle, or not not a hurdle, that's an important turnabout for their relationship. And Treya is very happy about this because she's looking quite healthy. She's feeling quite good. And things are looking quite positive. And Treya, well, she's also got her organization, Cancer Support Center. And she's got social events, which she says, well, these are classes and groups, but they're really just excuses for getting people together, having the energy of care in multiple people at once in a collective sense. 
And some people need to explain things. Some people need to have information. But a lot of what Treya's organization is doing is just having friendships and sharing. And sharing things that can't be shared in non-cancer patients, like the, the sharing of fears and discussing things like suicide and leaving your children and pain and fear of pain and death. And Trey is very sensitive to how the organization works because it is important to make sure that certain people don't mix with certain people at certain stages. For example, you don't want someone who's just been diagnosed to be in the crowd with someone who's doing their aggressive treatment for the same thing. And other organizations do mix people at various stages without preparing them for the shock to say, oh, you've just had this diagnosis and then all of a sudden you're in a group with someone who's got the same type of cancer but they're actually doing treatment for it or they're at a or they're at an advanced stage so that's a mistake you don't want to make with your organization that would be can, can you imagine making that mistake like what would that look like you'd you, you have a community so this is the community where you go for support this is where you go for community and friendship and then you go in there and you've just found out you're just recovering from the shock and then you sit down next to someone to talk to them about well you want to share you want to open up and then you find out oh we've got the same cancer except i'm six months down this track maybe this is what you're looking at this is maybe what you've got to look forward to Now, that is not a good situation to be in. And it's to Treya's testament and her team and her colleagues at the institute, uh, the, the, the center that they run, that they're sensitive to these things. So Ken, with his book, he doesn't get it published, but he's able to get one of his chapters, one of the chapters into the New Age journal or magazine. And this is alongside Trey's piece. So last chapter we were talking about Trey's piece and that was what kind of help really helps. And his piece is sort of complementary to that. It's a bit more technical, a bit more philosophical because he talks about the paradigms, whereas Trey's dealing with the interpersonal. And his piece is called Do We Make Ourselves Sick? And he briefly out outlines his major points. So the standard argument from the perennial philosophy is that men and women are grounded in the great chain of being, which means they all have matter, body, mind, soul, and spirit as levels. Now in disease, Ken says, it is extremely important to try to determine on which level or levels, plural, the disease is primary, primarily originated from, physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual. It is most important to use a same-level procedure 
for the prime, primary, but not necessarily only, cause of treatment. So for physical problems, you use physical treatments. For emotional problems, you use emotional therapy. For spiritual issues, you use spiritual methods and so on. Now, if you get this wrong on the levels and you have something that is a disease on a lower level, but you use a higher level solution or treatment, then you will generate guilt. Well, let me get this right. I think it's actually the other way around. If it's on the... So we've got guilt. The two things we're working here is guilt and despair. And you've got higher level treatments and lower level treatments and higher level illnesses and lower level illnesses. So let me get this straight. <laughs> let me try and say this more clearly. This is what Ken says. By thinking it originates on a higher than in fact does, higher level than in fact it does, then you will generate guilt. If on a lower, you will generate despair. So either way, the treatment will be less than effective and will have added some disadvantage of burdening the patient with guilt or despair. And let's, let's talk about the example he's got. Well, he's got this very simple example. Say you get hit by a bus and you break a leg. Well, you don't sit in the street and you visualize your leg mending. That's a mental level technique that isn't effective for the physical level. Now, if you do have to su happen to suffer from, say, low self-esteem, because certain scripts you have internalized about how rotten or incompetent you are, then that is a mental level problem that is related to the physical problem, but it's not going to fix it. Now, it could cause you to actually have a better mending. It might stop any holdbacks in healing if you were to fix that. So that's an example of same level or different level interacting. Another thing to be understood is a person suffering any major illness may make profound changes in the face of that illness. But it does not follow that the illness they got was because they lacked what those changes had in store for them. And the other example, or the way Ken puts this is, it would be like saying, if you have a fever and you take aspirin, the fever goes down. Therefore, having a fever is due to an aspirin deficiency, which is obviously not the case when you put it that simply. Now, let's talk a bit more about this upwards and lower, higher and lower issue because I feel like we need to be clear about this. And this comes from systems theory. And when you have what's called upward causation, a lower level 
problem is causing certain events in a higher level. So that would be like you break your leg and then you start going around thinking, oh, I'm such an idiot. Oh, I'm such a fool. How could I have been so stupid to walk out in front of that bus? And then the leg heals and it's physically fine, but you're still walking around thinking, oh, I'm an idiot. I can't believe that one time I got hit by a bus. So that's the physical affecting the higher level. Now, for the same way, you have downward causation. Does the mind, do our thoughts and emotions have an effect on physical illness? And the answer seems to be much more than once thought. Not really as much as the New Ages believe. So the answer is yes, your thoughts do affect your physical well-being. But there's some nuances here which need to be understood. And we're going to tease them apart because your thoughts affect you and your physical circumstances quickly translates into a false meritocracy of your circumstances in life. And this is really tricky. This really needs to be understood. And this is why there's so much hurt from the New Age paradigm. But essentially, what we can do on the... Well, let's just first of all look at this the correct way. Now, when you're doing an interaction between the mental and the physical levels, the method is visualization. And Ken points out, well, why is it images? And he says that if we look at the extended version of the great chain of being, you notice where images occur. So instead of just physical and then mental, well, let's break our mental down into a few different... Let's break those two levels down into, say, five or six different levels so it's more nuanced. You've got matter, sensation, perception, impulse, image, symbol, and concepts. So image, symbols, and concepts, they're the mental level. And sensation, perception, and impulse, they're the physical level. So you notice there that image is the lowest and most primitive part of the mind, which puts it in directly that puts it directly in touch with the highest part of the body. So image, in other words, is the mind's direct connection with the body, its moods, its impulses. And if you're thinking about well, how can, I, how can I trigger an impulse in my body using my mind? Well, you're going to use imagery. You're going to close your eyes and it's going to be a visual mental activity. It won't be words. It won't be philosophical dialogue. It will be like you're looking around inside a movie. Another way Ken puts this is that Well, all levels play some part in every illness because you're always going to have a mental image when you've got an illness. And to treat it, well, you want to be maximizing every level without making the mistake of thinking that the wrong level has caused something. And the metaphor he uses is it's like an election. 
So if you're running an election and you're working with visualizations, well, then those votes might be just enough to tip the swing to win the election. But they would only still be a small proportion of the full spectrum, which would not mean that that mental level is the same as filling the ballot box jam-packed full of votes. And that's another, well, that's another image on how you can work out how imagery works or how the mental level works. As for the New Age approach to this, well, they would be saying, no, it's all your mind. Actually, the whole voting system is voted on the mind, which means that it's left out a whole bunch of levels. In fact, all the levels. The whole world is in your mind. That's a statement of the New Age paradigm. And not only this, but they actually claim to use the perennial philosophy and the world's religious traditions as a evidence for this. And this is simply confusing the notion of Godhead creates all, or Brahma, with the notion that since I am one with God, I create all. And this position makes two mistakes, Ken says. This is something that, well, the original fathers of these philosophies would disagree with. And Ken says, well, one, the mistake is that God is an intervening parent of the universe instead of its impartial reality of suchness or condition. That's taking the mythological level of God. And then two, that your ego is one with that parental God and therefore can intervene and order the universe around. So that would be taking like a egoic red meme on your spiral dynamics and conflating it with the traditional fundamentalism religion. And then the other one of this, the other thing that comes up is, well, what about karma? Your deeds affect your actions. And that's, well, that's another example of the New Age taking the world traditions to support its claims. And Ken says, well, what happens if we go back and look at karma? And we say what karma says in its philosophical purity. And he says that, well, yes. Your present circumstances are indeed the results of thoughts and actions from a previous life. Not this life, a previous life. And your present thoughts and actions will affect your next life, not this life. And actually, that's just one side of karma. The other side is that, well, there are illnesses pronounced due to karma or the previous conditions of the individual, but there are also illnesses generated by energies that come from others, that come from outside. So neither of these two versions of karma 
and not even the more evolved teachings which are nuanced, support this notion from the New Age that, well, your thoughts affect reality. And at this stage, well, Ken gets a little bit up in antes, because he feels quite passionate about this. He feels quite strong. And he even has some statements that are quite hard against the New Ages, which is that he feels he's not going to relate compassionately to those who are causing suffering to others. Because these are hurtful notions. And he points out that, well, these New Age believers, they are saying these things, such as, oh, you create your own thoughts, you create your own reality with your thoughts, well, because of a narcissism. It's a rage. And it's a rage so twisted that it's expressed in the belief that, well, I don't want to hurt you, I love you, but disagree with me and you will get an illness that will kill you. Agree with me. Agree that you can create your own reality and you will get better. You will live. Now, nuanced New Ages who understand multiple levels, of course, respond to this with compassion. They respond to this with an open mind. But the hardcore New Ages react with rage, and they even said things to Treya that were very horrible. For example, that if Treya and Ken thought all this, then they deserve to get cancer. Ken's also very careful to say that his comments are not a blanket condemnation of the entire New Age movement. And this is how he understands this. There was a protest on about the Vietnam War at one of the universities. And as it just so happens that Kohlberg was at this university, and he's a moral theorist, so he went out and he got a, a bunch of these students and he said, well, let's get you to do this moral test. And with a good amount of case subjects, he was able to get, well, some percentages. And what he found was that 20% of these protesters were operating from post-conventional stages of morality. So these are the trans-conventional stages. And that is that their objections to the war were based on actual concern of the world. It was world-centric. It was environmentally centric. Now, that was 20%. Now, for the last 80%, they were actually pre-conventional, which means that their moral reasoning was based on selfish motives. They didn't want to fight, not because they thought it was wrong, but they thought, actually, well... Nobody should be telling them what to do. So in other words, says Ken, a small number of truly post- or trans-conventional students attracted a very large number 
of pre-conventional types to be lumped in together with them. Because they were both had in common that they were non-conventional. So these stages of post-conventional and pre-conventional, they're both non-conventional. So you've got pre-conventional, conventional, conventional, and post-conventional. And it seems that, well, 20% are post-conventional, but the vast majority of them are pre-conventional. Now, the people who are post-conventional, they're constantly trying to deal with these delicate and flaky people because, well, they don't want to be lumped in with those goofy crowd. So these pre-person, pre-personal, pre-conventional trends are, well, they're, they're sort of messing up the post-conventional. And they're always having to deal with this. They're always having to make these distinctions and explain this to people. That's why Ken's taking the time to explain it here. That's why he's making these nuances. So the flakier friends, the 80% pre-conventional, get rather bad at the post-conventional because they tend to think that, well, there are only two camps in the world, rational and non-rational. And we should join against the rationalistic camp. But in fact, there are three camps which is pre-rational, rational, and trans-rational or post-rational. And the post-rationalists, well, they're actually closer to the rationalists than the pre-rationalists. And this, well, Ken calls this the pre-trans fallacy. And it comes up, well, not just in rationalism and not even just in morality, but in many different ways. So if you can understand the pre-trans fallacy, then you've got got like a meta-solution to multiple pathologies across multiple levels between multiple paradigms. Wow. That's a pretty good trick to have your mind around. That's a pretty good thing to be carrying in your toolkit. It's definitely one you want to have in your toolkit. So to be absolutely clear, think of it this way. We've got our levels. On the lower level, we've got pre-conventional. And then we've got in the middle, conventional. And then at the top, we've got post-conventional. And the pre-trans fallacy is the pre and the post look like they're together. They look like they're the same because they're not conventional. And if you can wrap your head around that, wow. So the plot continues. And... Treyer and Ken, well, there's another physical for Treyer. She's doing quite well. There's nothing wrong with her. She's still on her diet. And they start to feel like, well, their life might actually return to something resembling normal. 
and they have Christmas again. And it's one of the first Christmases that they haven't been in and out of some medical problem. So it feels quite good. She's still doing her affirmations and her diet and her exercise and her art and all these things. Until one day they're driving along and Treya has this problem with her eyes, her eyesight. And she's had it before, but sort of on and off, just this little thing. And they think, well, it's not going away. We better go and have it checked out. So they go to the doctor's. And she has a high-density CAT scan on her brain. And Ken is sitting in the waiting room when the doctor comes in and pulls him aside. And he says, it looks like there are three tumours in her brain. One of them is quite large, perhaps three centimetres. So we're going to scan her lungs as well. And Ken says, well, have you told Treya yet? And of course he's in shock. He doesn't know how to take this. And the doctor says, no, let's wait until we scan her lungs. So he sits back down. Brain tumours. Brain tumours. This is serious. And when the doctor comes back, after doing the lung scans, the doctor tells Ken that Treya has tumours throughout both lungs, possibly as many as 12 tumours. Now, quite insensitively, the doctor says, please don't say anything to her. And Ken is in shock. He's quite overwhelmed by this information that he's just received, and he doesn't have his wits about him, which means that, well, he doesn't have the chance to say, hey, listen, doc, we don't do, do things like that. I'm telling her right now. And instead of saying that, he just actually says, okay, and goes along with it. So they drive home. Ken doesn't say much. And when he gets home, he vomits. He's quite sick. Which would actually be a example of a mental level activity affecting a physical level problem is vomiting. So that's actually what we've been talking about, is how the mind affects the body. All he's had is one conversation with the doctor, and it's enough to make him physically sick. And now he's thinking, well, I'm going to have to kill that doctor. And they go to a movie, 
and afterwards they come home and the doctor calls and tells Trey the news. And her reaction is rage. Overwhelming rage. She's shocked. How could this happen? She's done everything right. She didn't feel fear. She didn't feel afraid. She was simply furious. She was throwing things, yelling, enraged, outraged. She's not about to let go of her anger. This is a mature response. She's pissed off. She wants to fight. All of a sudden, the white knights in her visualizations turn into piranhas. And, well, what are their options? The next day, Treya calls family and friends and they start furiously and intensively searching for any treatments anywhere that had a chance of handling a case this aggressive and this advanced. And there's a whole list of them. There's Burton, Ravisi, Berzinski, Kelly Gonzalez, Livingston Wheeler, Hans Nipper, Hans Lucas, Gerson. And these are from all over the world. They're in Germany, they're in Switzerland, they're in Mexico, they're in America. So now we're looking at anything that could work. And there's one that is called the Yanka Clinic, which is world famous for its short-term high-dose chemotherapy, which in some cases is so aggressive that people have to be put on life support systems. And one of her doctors actually advises her not to go to Germany. But the truth of the matter, the situation that she's in, with this many tumors, with the cancer that spread this far throughout her body, she has maybe one year to live if she is lucky. <laughs> 